We no promote no violence. We condemn the violence. Rasta no promote no violence. Give me I warmly welcome you to our special episode as we commemorate International Human Rights Day. My name is Nangam Sokwinana and I'm happy that you have tuned in again. We have already met some exciting people such as Elizabeth Minder from Tanzania and Judge Edwin Cameron from South Africa. If you missed our previous episodes, listen in. You can find the links in the show notes of this podcast. Today, we have a very special guest. I don't want to spoil it and let you in on where we are traveling today, but listen to this one and see if you can figure it out. That was Bobby Wine, and today our journey is taking us to Uganda. Violent clashes between Ugandan security forces and protesters have left 16 people dead in the capital, Kampala. According to the Red Cross, more than 40 people were injured. Among the injured, 11 were treated for gunshot wounds following scuffles between police and protesters. Police say the cause of the deaths and nature of the injuries is being investigated. Doesn't the East African community have protocols on elections, um, intimidation, uh, the free and fairness of uh, uh, campaigning, and literally the um, extrajudicial killings that are taking place? If uh, the way that Kiza Besigye has been treated in the past as an opposition leader, uh, it's quite likely that this kind of uh, a, a continual ar uh, um, arrests will continue uh, throughout the next year. And uh, yes, uh, as a matter of fact, it, it's for sure is uh, the kind of mannerism of, of uh, the local authorities here. While they try to push for uh, some of the regulations that, uh, that they actually put in place to have what would, would call order and in, in, in particular gatherings, uh, it, it becomes a bit of a tough ask here on uh, those that uh, are in the position to try and meet every, every uh, aspect that uh, is being asked of them. Bobby Wine is currently being held at Nalufenya Detention Center in Uganda's eastern city of Jinja. His arrest sparked riots in several parts of the country, including the capital Kampala. Located in East Africa, the Republic of Uganda has borders with southern Sudan, as well as with Kenya, Tanzania, Rwanda, and the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uganda also borders Lake Victoria. Presidential elections are scheduled to take place in early 2021. President Yoweri Museveni, who has ruled for the past 34 years, hopes for a sixth term in office. In 2005, the provision limiting the head of state's term of office to two terms was lifted. Instead, an age limit of 75 years for presidential candidates was introduced, meaning that you could technically be president for your whole adult life up to the age of 75 and then only have to leave office 
And that's if the constitution is not re-amended. Which is exactly what happened in Uganda. In 2017, the parliament passed a controversial constitutional amendment by a two-thirds majority that abolished even the age limit. These amendments paved the way for President Museveni's candidacy in the upcoming elections in 2021. Human rights violations are rising in Uganda. More and more frequently, reports occur speaking of violent breakups of demonstrations and excessive violence by the security forces against the opposition, the media, and the public. Violations of the freedom of speech, press, and assembly are at the core of the agenda. In today's episode, we have two guests visiting us. Please welcome Nicholas Opio. Nicholas Opio is a leading human rights lawyer and founder of Chapter 4 Uganda, an organization that provides research, advocacy, and outreach services to contribute to laws, policies, and practices in the interest of civil liberties and human rights. Since 2005, Opio has worked tirelessly to promote civil liberties in Uganda, often pro bono. In 2015, he won the Voices for Justice Award for Human Rights Watch. In 2016, he won the European Union Parliament Sakharov Fellows Prize. And in 2017, he was the recipient of the German Africa Prize. We are very pleased that Honorable Robert Shagulanyi Sendamu has taken the time to join our podcast today. He is better known under his stage name, Bobby Wine. Bobby Wine is a Ugandan politician, leader of the opposition, and presidential candidate for the 2021 elections. He's also an activist, singer, actor, business person, and philanthropist. As of July 2017, he has been serving as Member of Parliament representing Shadondo East constituency in the Wakiso district in Uganda's central region. As we've just heard uh, briefly described, the situation in Uganda is complicated. In fact, the situation seems to be coming to a climax. And we keep hearing about restrictions of the freedom of the press and freedom of expression. Nicholas, can you give us a brief overview of the developments in human rights in Uganda? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. Um, the situation in Uganda deteriorates by the day as we approach elections. A keen follower of Uganda's history would know that this is not surprising. At every election cycle, we see a spike in intolerance. We see a spike in state uh, violence towards citizens. And so this is just a, this is just a season. You know, we call it here the silly seasons. It appears every election we begin to experience this kind of things. And the intensity of it seems to be proportional to the threat that the ruling party uh, he's facing. In other words, the more serious the opponent, the more intense the violence. So over the last couple of weeks, we have begun to see the reoccurrence of this uh, in Uganda. First, there's a general narrative accusing an unnamed foreign group uh, as interfering into 
for in the elections, the state um, officials who normally and ruling party, uh, you know, mouthpieces would normally say foreigners are seeking to interfere in the election, and they begin to paint their opponents as agents of this unnamed foreign power. No country is named, no individuals are named. So it's a blanket accusation of foreigners interfering in the election. And that provides a justification for an onslaught on the civil society who are seen as or have accused as being agents of foreign power simply on account of the fact that they get grants from foreign foundations. They then go on to begin to arrest opponents of the regime who are similarly accused of being agents of foreign power. Independent media begins to get under intense scrutiny and attack. And then subsequently, we begin to see uh, the violations of the freedom of association, the freedom of expression, including media freedoms. Media houses begin to get directives um, to stop hosting certain kinds of people or broadcasting certain kinds of news. Unfortunately, what we have seen in the last two weeks is that it has culminated into broad daylight shooting by security officials. So far, about 47 people have been counted dead, shot in the hands of security officials. Their crime, protesting the arrest of a popular opposition candidate. That definitely does look like a very concerning situation that you've highlighted to us, Nicholas. Um, I heard that you also mentioned that uh, day by day, as you near the elections, you are noticing high trends of violence by the state towards its citizens. Could you please share with us who would you say are the groups that are most particularly affected by human rights violations in Uganda? So first of all, it's a class, it's a class uh, difference here because the people who tend to associate with the position in, in, in the country are people who are oppressed, are people who are poor, people who are on the fringes of society. So every time there is um, you know, a, dis- a disturbance of the peace, a shooting of people, they tend to shoot people in low-income areas, people who are protesting their own situation and who are looking to the election to change their fortunes in life. So overall, they tend to be the urban poor who are targeted for this repression. Most of the people who are killed in the last two weeks in Uganda come from poor urban communities or slums in the city. Secondly. It also appears that the vast majority are youthful people, very young people who work in informal um, um, jobs in the city. So the class approach is then you is also witnessed by the amount of deployment of armed security forces when suppressing this kind of riots or demonstrations. The deployments tend to be heaviest, if not exclusively in areas where poor people live in the city. The second group of people that are targeted are people who are working on human rights issues. So people who are working on issues of accountability, um, people who are working on issues of freedom of democratic elections. And so these groups tend to be targeted. And and at a secondary level, you begin to see the attacks on civil society organizations and actors in that space. Uh, The attacks on people who predominantly 
work with rural communities. The third lot tends to be media houses and media practitioners. A vast majority of the people who are injured in the course of the campaign have been media practitioners who are simply bringing to the public what they're observing uh, in the campaign trail. They have been targeted for that. So many people have been beaten and injured. Uh, many media houses have had uh, their owners threatened and people who seek to appear on their shows just away. The last one seems to be the active political mobilizers for the political opposition. Several individuals who support mobilize at local level for Bobby Wine and his party are being picked up at night, are being beaten up, are being run over by cars. Two days ago, a youthful enthusiast and supporter of Bobby Wine was knocked dead by a police car in a deliberate killing. And so they're targeting young people, they're targeting the poor, they're targeting NGO workers and the press. And um, the form of intimidation includes killing, um, you know, imprisonment, shooting and injury um, and, and many other forms. Honorable Robert Chagulani Sentamu, you are also known by your stage name, Bobby Wine. You're an artist, and in the last few years, you've also become a politician. You often wrap up your messages in songs, and thereby you are able to reach particularly the young audience on this very young continent. Art and politics is quite an unusual but very exciting combination. Can you tell us a little bit about your career? How did you find your way into politics? Thank you very much and uh, for having me here. Well, politics has been part of me. Politics has shaped everything around me. Um, politics is the reason why I ended up being a ghetto child. And yes, politics is the reason why I've been singing. However, I, as an artist over the years, we have been believing that I'm playing my role as an artist to communicate very important and sensitive messages. It is only three years ago that I decided to take a decisive role in uh, the practical politics of our country. My music has always been otherwise referred to as edutainment. In brief, education through entertainment. And that is how I believed and still believe that is the best way to push messages. However, it has caused me some other challenges. But I'm glad that I, together with many other young people, have been able to change the narrative and the thinking of the common people. And most importantly, the way the young people of Uganda and Africa view themselves. Nicholas, if I'm hearing you clearly, it sounds that uh, you are relaying to us that the people who are in dire need of change and development in Uganda are the ones that seemingly are the most affected by the disturbance of peace in the country. You've also mentioned to us that young people are mostly being targeted by the regime. And lastly, you've also indicated to us that those who advocate for the rule of law and human rights being upheld and respected as prescribed in Uganda's law are seemingly the frontline targets in the country. Now, that brings me to a very interesting uh, question that I'd like to find out. Earlier today, we, of course, also heard about President Yoweri Museveni, who, of course, is the president who has ruled Uganda for the past 34 years and now also hopes for a sixth term in office. How easy was it to first abolish provision limiting that the head of state's term 
of office uh, would be up to two years and ultimately to overturn the age limit of 75 years. What are the legal implications of such a despotism? First, Yuri Museveni came into power on the back of unstable governments. In 1986, when his rebel group took over power, he promised so many things for this country. People were excited when they arrived into town because they promised the country that this would be a fundamental change, a fundamental departure from the instabilities of past governments. Immediately he took over power, he embarked on signing several international human rights instruments, the UN Convention Against Torture. He also signed the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. He instituted a Human Rights Commission to investigate human rights violations from 1962, the year we got independence, to 1986, the year he came into power. He committed to drawing a new constitution. And so people were really excited. A new constitution was then promulgated in 1995, hailed across the world as a beautiful constitution, a human rights-based constitution. That constitution established a couple of things, a Bill of Rights, a national human rights institution to monitor and enforce the observance of human rights in the country. It also set out to stop the problem of leaders overstaying in power by establishing a two-term limit for the presidency. The constitution also established an, a second tier of limitation, which is an age limit that a person would not be a head of state beyond the age of 75. These were seen as these were seen as safeguards to abuse of power. They were seen as the bulwark for stability. But no sooner had the ink dried on the constitution than President Museveni embarked on a process to amend that constitution. First, to remove presidential age limit. When he had served his second term, um, he was supposed to retire. He didn't want to retire. Through a process of bribery, bribing members of parliament, through a process of intimidation, he set out to amend the constitution to remove the presidential term limits. And so in 2015, presidential term limits were removed from our constitution, allowing him to contest for a third term for as many terms as he wanted. When he did that, he then came up against, came up against the second limitation, which was the presidential age limit. Again, he set out to amend the constitution and remove presidential age limits. In doing all of this, he went against the things he had publicly said, because he, when he came to power, had said the problem of African leaders were leaders who overstay in power. He also said that when you're 75 years of age, you should retire and go and look after your children. So all of these actions were actions that went against not just what he said, but also against what was popularly adopted in the Constitution. Honourable Robert Chagulani Sentamo, you have been a member of parliament since 2017, as you've mentioned, and now you're also running to become the president of Uganda. You inspire yes. the population and especially the young people. For the same reasons, however, you are a red flag to the current government. Repeatedly, there have been intimidation attempts to silence you 
and to undermine your work. Which state of intimidation attempts and situations have left a lasting impression on you? Were there times when you wanted to give up? Um, well, the um, wave of change is not unique to Uganda and the character of despots, especially here in Africa, is not unique to Uganda. As the wave of change, as the uh, massive mental upliftment and psychological involvement of the young people of Africa takes precedent, there has been a widespread fear by the aged and aging despots around Africa. In my own case, I only narrowly survived an assassination attempt on my life in, in August of 2017, uh, which uh, ended up taking my driver. And since then, uh, my music has been abolished, my voice has been abolished, and my image itself has been abolished that it is a crime for anybody to associate with me. It is a crime for me to attend mass and uh, prayers have been tear gassed where I show up. All this has um, continued to communicate to me and other people that are trying to stand against the status quo in Africa, how it is. However, um, whether or not it should make us sad or relent, I, I don't think so. Of course, there are times when um, it has occurred to me, and I believe many other freedom fighters in Africa, the contemplation of giving up. But the, the motivation that we get from the masses, especially the young people, is reason enough for us to keep going. In Uganda, particularly, the young people that are younger than me, they are more in their 80% uh, because... Uh, Uganda is a population of 45 million, but more than 80% of Ugandans are under 35 years of age. So that gives us confidence to keep moving, knowing that we are the majority and we share the same hopes and aspirations. Now, in our earlier conversation, Nicholas, we've already explained that you as a human rights lawyer deal with exactly such violations. Reports from Uganda repeatedly state that legal proceedings in the country are often very long. If there are any charges brought forward at all, what are the chances of succeeding, especially when it comes to state violations? First of all, as a human rights lawyer, we believe that it is important to accurately document what is happening. Even if it may appear that there are no remedies at the moment, it is important to document these violations. Because at point P and time T, somebody will be held to account for their conduct. So we engage in a process of meticulous documentation to the extent that we can of the violations ha happening across the country. We are getting names of individuals involved. We're getting all manners of evidence, including medical reports, photographs of dead bodies so that when we are able to do so in one way or the other, here in Uganda or outside Uganda, we'll hold them to account. Secondly, in cases where we have the capacity, we have taken these cases to court. We take them to court not because we expect that we will get instant justice. The courts have their own problems. There's a lack of independence. There's also fear in many judicial officers because they're intimidated. But there's also just the inefficiency of the court system, case backlogs. 
So we take these cases to court first with an official account of what has happened. We want to give voice to victims so that these victims have a space to let the world know what happened to them and the impact on them. In some cases, we have gotten judgments in favor of the victims or survivors of this kind of actions. The courts in some cases, the Uganda Human Rights Commission in some cases, has given compensation to the families of people who were killed. The second tier problem then is that government sometimes, in fact, most of the time, disregards the ruling of the court. They do not pay the compensations ordered by the court. In many cases, the families of deceased persons actually die chasing the compensations ordered by the court. Or in many cases, for example, where we have, we have gotten court orders for unconditional release of people who are being detained illegally, they've simply ignored court orders. And so there's a limitation to legal uh, processes as an avenue for resolving these cases of violations. But nonetheless, we try and pursue them because we think that there's a long-term objective. Over and above legal proceedings, we've also now begun a process we call social accountability. The individuals who are killing people on the streets of Kampala are children from our communities. We know them. We are involved in a process of taking their photographs and making it known to the public and to the community that individual X was the one who was involved in killing people in place Y. And leave it to the community to pile social pressure on them to make it difficult for them to find space to survive in those societies. So we are aware of the limitations of the use of the courts as a mechanism, and we supplement that by social accountability to ensure that the people in the neighborhoods put pressure on them, put pressures on their families, and perhaps restrain them from doing what they're doing. Thank you, Nicholas. I'd like to also go back to an earlier relay that you shared with us, which was at the time when we were engaging about those that are mostly affected by the disturbance of peace in Uganda. You shared with us that it was the young people. You shared with us that the media houses are targeted. You shared with us that the advocates of the rule of law and human rights are also targeted. And in your relay to us, you also mentioned that in particular, the independent media is frontline being targeted by the governing party together with the young people who are opposing all the atrocities that are happening in Uganda. Taking it from that media element, in 2018, a social media tax was imposed in Uganda. Ahead of the introduction, President Yoweri Museveni wrote to the finance ministry, argumenting that the tax was a necessary measure to deal with online gossip. In your opinion, did this law truly serve its proclaimed sole purpose to, camp to combat fake news? Or would you say that perhaps it was rather another attempt by the government to undermine the free flow of information in Uganda? First, the publicly stated objective of that law was that of collecting revenue. But the underlying unstated objective was Museveni's long-term discomfort 
with the increasing influence and use of social media as a space for organizing. Besides the, so, the social media tax, or what was called the OTT tax, the over-the-top tax, there were several laws that were enacted to limit the use of social media. For example, you have laws such as the Computer Misuse Act that criminalizes expressions online. There were attempts to prosecute individuals who had used social media to criticize the regime. The case of a university don and researcher, Dr. Stella Nyanzi, is a popular one. There were many individuals who, are, who held social media accounts who were arrested and prosecuted. The social media tax, another of those measures uh, that was disguised as a means of collecting revenue, but in fact was intended to limit the continued influence of social media as a space for organizing. Many years after the law was passed, the, the, the Revenue Authority has said it's become a difficult tax to collect. The Minister for ICT has said that law is limiting innovation in the ICT sector because it's locking out a vast majority of people who cannot afford to, to, to pay the tax. But also more importantly, technology is often five steps ahead of government. There have been many ways of circumventing the tax that has made the tax really an unuseful tax. But in terms of fake news, the problem of fake news, the problems of misinformation, disinformation, is a constant problem uh, across the world, that people use social media for all manners of good things, but also for some bad things. We have begun to see now a constant attempt by different organized groups to use social media to spread disinformation or to spread misinformation. Many of them are actually party, ruling party uh, social media accounts and groups. And so the problem of misinformation, disinformation and fake news continues even after the tax has been, has been enacted. I think that the dealing with that is going to require much more than just taxation, uh, but more about responsibility from social media companies to be able to regulate their platform and make sure that they are not used for disinformation or fake news. And lastly, if we were to try and look at the opportunity cost of this introduction in terms of the media tax in relation to human rights abuses, how would you respond if we were to weigh those two? What is the opportunity cost? Look, citizen journalism has become a very important source for information, even tips for conventional media. And in many of the cases where we have seen cases of violations, they have been reported not because a media house was there. They have been reported simply because people had smartphones in their hands. They were able to record what they were seeing and they were able to post it. And so citizen journalism has become not just a means of expression, but a tool of accountability for many people across this country. Things such as the social media tax will only help to limit that sort of measure for accountability and for communication. 
But I think that the, the, the cost of all of this is going to be because social media is not just a means for communication. It's also a space for business. Many unemployed young people have found, um, they found the space, a useful space for getting employment opportunity. They are selling goods. They are selling services. They are using the space for saving lives in many delivering life-saving information to mothers in villages, life-saving information to HIV-AIDS positive individuals. So social media has become also a space for economic activity. And so limiting it in any way or form only limits the possibilities for economic uh, activity for young people who have found this space very useful. But more importantly, it stifles discussion and drives people to rumors, to underground means of communication, which is more dangerous than fake news on social media. Bobby, before we come to an end of this very exciting episode, please may you allow me two last questions. What does freedom mean to you personally and what role does it play in your life? Well, freedom for me, and I believe for many other young people in Africa and the world, means the right to think for yourself. It means the right to agree or disagree with anybody, including the leaders, without being hounded and persecuted. Freedom means living um, comfortably. Freedom means equality. It means uh, having equal rights. It means equal punishment from the law and equal protection from the law. Freedom means uh, enjoying my talent and using it to express myself without being restricted. Freedom means the ability to live in the world equally with other people before and under the law. That is what freedom means to me. And lastly, would you have a message for our young listeners who possibly also suffer from authoritarian regimes and unfortunately cannot yet live freely in the 21st century? What would you recommend to these young listeners? Uh, Thank you. Uh, To the young listeners all over Africa, I just want to remind them of the words of... uh, the noble um, P.L. Olumumba, who said there will come a time in Africa when African youth rise never to fall anymore. I want to remind them that that time is now. For a long time, we have been told that we are the leaders of tomorrow. And I got news for you. Tomorrow has come. The future is today. If we are the leaders of the future, then it's important for us to know that the future is today. We are the biggest number we are the majority. These in the, our grandfathers and fathers in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s were looking at us as the solution. They were the promise and we are the fulfillment. It is now that we must rise to the occasion and create an Africa that we can all be proud of. All that we are going through are, is a result of the decisions, the choices, and the actions that we are taking yesterday. Today, we are making the decisions, the choices, and the actions that will determine our life, the lives of our children and our grandchildren. So it is important for us not to just be bystanders, not to be spectators. It is important that the young people of Africa as a whole get practically involved in the way they are being governed because 
There is no problem with Africa. Africa's problem are not the natural resources. It is not the weather. It is not the people. It is the leadership. It is the governance. And if we don't rise to the occasion and create the Africa that we want and define ourselves as Africa, then we will continue to lag behind courtesy of our leaders. The leaders that are governing us today are not going to be present in the next 10, 20, 30 years to enjoy the work of their, out, of, of their actions today or to pay for the misdeeds that they are doing today. The time is now. We are the ones we've been waiting for. We are the ones we've been expecting. Nobody else is going to come from anywhere to create for us an Africa that we want. As a young person myself, I received that message fully. Thank you for educating us, Nicholas. At this point, we would particularly like to thank you. Again, Honorable Robert Shagulani Sendamu, also known as Bobby Wine, for allowing us to use your music for our podcast episodes. And thank you so much for your advocacy and commitment, not only to Uganda, but to Africa at large. Thank you, sir. From the insights shared in this podcast, it seems clear that the rule of law is being violated in Uganda and that it's necessary for things to change very soon if Uganda is to retain some form of democracy. Another thing that begs consideration is the fact that 75% of Uganda's population is below the age of 35 and being led by a government well into their senior years. Many Ugandans are fighting for the liberty of their nation and the future of their children. We can only hope that Ugandans will secure their aspirations as they head to the polls in early 2021. This has been our special episode of Let's Talk Human Rights, the FNF Africa podcast exploring human rights issues. We hope you enjoyed it. The Friedrich Naumann Foundation Sub-Sahara Africa is an independent German organization that is committed to promoting liberal ideals and politics in Africa, such as human rights, the rule of law, democracy, innovation, digitalization, and free trade. By conducting campaigns, media events, seminars, workshops, study tours, cultural happenings, and training courses, the foundation promotes human rights, including freedom of expression, freedom of the press, children's rights, LGBTQI rights, and condemns violence against women and capital punishment. If you are interested in our activities, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Simply check for Freedom Foundation Africa.